Welcome to the Institute, a podcast on the lives and work of fellows and friends of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Philip Hollingsworth. In this episode, Sophia Ramos speaks with Associate Professor of American Studies, Michelle Robinson. In their conversation, Professor Robinson talks about a course she designed on stand-up comedy and her current book project on evangelist Billy Graham. I guess we're just kind of get started. How are you feeling? I'm how's okay. This, how's the semester going? It's different than It's an normal. extremely different semester. Yeah. Uh, not teaching for the first time in quite a while. Right. How's that feel? Is there an alarm clock still? Like, are you still getting, like, <laughs> in your flow of crazy school time? Or what's that like? Well, my life is a lot less frantic. Hmm. Not working with uh, teaching assistants, not thinking of something at the last moment to try and frantically look up to to tell students when class starts or having a a last idea that I need to suppress but want to talk about anyways. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh My brain needs to slow down a little bit and get focused. Sure, sure. And that's what the semester's about. Perfect. Yeah. So thinking about your courses that you taught, and now that's a break, but I was thinking about in American studies and what you do, It spans a variety of topics. I mean, it's race, it's, you know, it's comedy in some areas, and there's gender, and there's all these kind of topics that intersect, maybe. Um, Can you tell me just a little bit about the coursework that you've done and how important it is to you? I've had the chance at UNC Chapel Hill to develop an incredibly varied set of courses in the American Studies Department. And one of the reasons I can do that is because our department is so interdisciplinary and I get to kind of feed off the energies of all the other scholars in my department. So we have an economist, we have a linguist, we have folklorists and anthropologists, historians, people who come from um, what I would say a more conventional American studies background, and that would, would include me. So. Sure. I went to Boston University in the program in New England and American Studies, and it's a program where there's a lot of emphasis on literature, history, art history. My own areas of specialization there were uh, U.S. literature mm-hmm. and then also cinema and U.S. religious history. Okay. So those are where my courses uh, come out of, different kind of combinations of uh, those three fields. And I realized a little while ago, after I developed a class on comedy, that my application to graduate school was actually about humor and how I wanted to work in humor. <laughs> yeah. um, and then my entire graduate career, I did not do that. Oh, okay. So <laughs> one of the classes I teach now, and it's really exciting and it's super relevant to students now, is called The Ethics of Stand-Up Comedy. Hmm. Um, and we focus a lot not only on the history of stand-up as a discrete artistic uh, form in the United States, but also on um, the modes of production, the kinds of performance, Mm -hmm. the issues that have to do with gender and race um, and politics and all sorts of kind of facets of American life come into play when you start talking about stand-up. And last year it was a little bit um, unexpected and exciting, um, maybe not the best of ways, when 
there was the Me Too scandal surrounding Louis C.K., which had happened after we watched Louis C.K., right? um, but was an incredibly productive discussion. Wow. Also gave me an opportunity to switch my syllabus at the last moment, which all professors love to do. (laughs) I'm sure, right? (laughs) But, uh, yeah, it was was, uh, just another way of knowing how important some of the things we do in American studies are for helping students navigate sure. current events. Right. When we look at our culture today, or, you know, in this instance, stand-up comedy, or maybe in the films that are coming out now, I feel like a lot of your work navigates that, like, you know, what that means kind of for the students now. And if are there any kind of, is there any medium now that we should be looking at that's like kind of a predictor of like where the culture shift is going, if that makes sense? When you're talking about a medium, I mean, the obvious answer would be Twitter. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Right? I mean, I guess, uh, and maybe we're past that already, Mm -hmm. but I don't use Facebook. Me neither. I don't Instagram and I don't Snapchat, so I'm horribly behind the times, but I can't help but spend time on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, Not tweeting per se, but watching that world Mm -hmm. move. Right. Um, And I find it incredibly fascinating. Um, and it's a place that is also interesting for comedy hmm. because the the mode of expression is so sharp or so small or so slight that you find these moments of genius that whole audiences that you would never come in contact with use to have these fabulous uh, and really incredible commentary, funny commentary on current events. Right. Totally. I feel like I'm just now getting into the stand-up world. I I had never gone to a stand-up show before, mm-hmm. and I went in Denver like maybe six months ago, and I was just amazed. It was like, yeah, like the current event topics were like more digestible to me. I feel like, and the way that it was like being expressed, but also it's just like I've the intimate setting of it was just like totally different than anything. Cause I'm, I watched Louis CK, you know, I watched like all the mm-hmm. Netflix stand-up comedy things, but it was it, experiencing that was like pretty cool. So, but do you have a favorite stand-up comic? I'm really interested in the availability of different kinds of stand-up comedy. There's been some great work by Jason Zimmerman at the New York Times, who was hired as the first comedy critic oh, wow. several years ago, and which just is a testament to how important comedy has become in American life. And he's written about how David Letterman mm-hmm. um, and the people who worked for David Letterman in particular shaped or were gatekeepers for what we understood stand-up comedy to be. Hmm. And so there was this vast other land where these eccentric comedians were kind of wandering about, maybe finding audiences, but never making the big time. And now Netflix, who is giving a stand-up show to anyone who can walk, right? right? (laughs) It allows us, you know, creates this whole, uh, there's a proliferation of comedians that we have access to. Um, so now I'm seeing more of comedians that I really enjoy, like Hari Kondabolu is one of them, Aparna Nanchurla. They're both Asian-American comedians whose work I really enjoy. Uh, Maria Bamford is another one. And Bo Burnham is doing some really interesting right. things. So, right. yeah, we have just really uh, a great time to discover more comedians and, and find these little moments or or individual comics who 
who I hope I'll see more of. Right. Yeah. So this fall, you're taking a semester leave. And I just want to talk about what is, you know, the project that you're doing through the faculty fellowship and kind of what led you to that project. This fall, I'm very excited to be working on a research project I began, I'd say, a couple of years ago. Um, And I'm really picking it up now and working more with the archival research that I've been doing. And it's on the evangelist uh, Billy Graham. Mm -hmm. And before I moved to North Carolina and started working at the University of North Carolina, I, of course, knew who Billy Graham was. But uh, suddenly I was hearing more and more about him. And I became interested in doing a smaller project, which has been kind of turned into a chapter in an edited collection that came out um, earlier this year. And it was a project about Billy Graham in Las Vegas. Mm. Um, And his 1978, the, the term used then was crusade, but it was a mission or revival trip to Las Vegas that was a kind of complex endeavor in a city that had a very complicated and somewhat negative reputation at the time. Uh, So I did a lot of research both at the Billy Graham Center in Wheaton, Illinois, where a lot of the archives of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association are, and then also at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, at their gambling collection. And I was able to find out quite a lot about the Christians in Las Vegas in uh, 1978 and some of the, the major questions and concerns they had about whether or not they could be good Christians. Just uh, because they lived in Las Vegas and they were not, kind of in that yeah, community? or Not just because they lived in Las Vegas, mm-hmm. but because their livelihoods were intrinsically tied to this casino resort industry. Sure. Um, so what did it mean to be uh, someone who was a pit boss and dealing during the day or um, a maid in a hotel on the strip and then have uh, another life off of the strip where they were, you know, living with their families and raising children. And an enormous group in the community, after trying for over a decade to have Billy Graham come to uh, Las Vegas, uh, had the good fortune to be able to get on his schedule. Um, and it was an uh, important moment on both sides where uh, Billy Graham and his team also had to adjust the way that they uh, hosted or planned a revival because they wanted to connect with people who were on the strip too. So mm-hmm. this is kind of fascinating set of questions where you know people are making arguments. Well, yes, you can wear a G-string on Saturday night and teach Bible study on Sunday morning. Yeah. Or you can be a dealer and that's fine. You're also a Christian. It's just like working in a factory. It's no different. And Billy Graham and his team come to Las Vegas and they realize, okay, so maybe we want to reach people on this trip. Well, what does that mean? We have to hold a rally at 4 a.m. so that we can get strippers and dancers and dealers and pit bosses and servers who are coming off their shifts and then have them be part of an event that is central to this revival. So Mm -hmm. there was a lot of news surrounding it, um, a lot of interest by the casino owners too, insofar as they hope the image of Las Vegas might change um, and it would be perceived as a more family-friendly place. 
Interesting. While the Christians who lived there as well, a lot of the evangelicals who participated in this um, crusade or revival event were also hoping that Las Vegas would be recognized nationally as the place where Christians lived. Oh, wow. That's super interesting. It's fascinating. Yeah, I just, I never knew that. (laughs) Yeah, that that one event, you know, especially like growing up in the South too, I was really familiar with Billy Graham and like had watched a lot as I was growing up. But yeah, I never knew that that one piece. That's really interesting. In your research so far, and I guess, you know, over a couple of years as you've kind of been touching on this project with Billy Graham, what's like the most surprising thing that you found if you didn't already mention earlier? Well, one of the things that I've been doing more recently and is is deeply connected to this bigger project about Billy Graham is looking at letters that individuals wrote him. So sometimes it would be a whole community that would get together and um, pastors and leaders in churches and businessmen and um, other Uh, important figures in a community would work together to try and invite him and plan a crusade under the guidance of his team. Mm -hmm. And then there were other other moments where individuals, ordinary men and women, would write him directly and ask for a crusade in their town, their town of 100 people, right? And they would have very specific reasons they needed him to come. Mm. So there'd be a letter from say, an uh, older woman that said, well, my husband, you know, he's on the brink of death and he hasn't been saved yet. So please, can you come to my town? Right. right? Or there would be a younger girl who just joined, uh, say, a kind of Youth for Christ organization at her high school and would say, you know, if you have a crusade up your sleeve, maybe you can come, you know, to Arizona or someone who would write. And I, I think this was in a letter from a child, like, Billy Graham, please let me know how to go to heaven, right? right? Come and tell me. Um, so I've been looking at those letters, and one of the things I'm very interested in is the type of relationship that people experienced with Billy Graham having never met him. Right. So some people will write, you know, dear Billy, right, as if they know him, or say, well, I know you through the remote control hmm. because they had watched him on television. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm interested in investigating how ordinary people and how communities kind of contacted him, built relationships, imagined possible relationships with him, and how these small communities were distinct in the way that they imagined relationships with him. Just as with Las Vegas, there were particular issues that the community was confronting. I'm trying to get away from kind of homogenous understanding of what Billy Graham meant to people in the United States or evangelical Christians, and to think more locally about how individuals and communities contacted him and shaped what it would mean for him to be there, what they thought he could do or his presence might do, not only spiritually, but also civically or economically, or in terms of bringing harmony and race relations to their um, specific community and looking for how those were different from place to place. So I'm looking at crusade events, for instance, in Oklahoma in 1956, where he spoke to a group of Native Americans. Or in 1965, he went to Hawaii, where there were only 10% 
of the population was Christian. Oh, wow. And had to answer questions about Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Had to think very differently about where he was um, geographically in a region that had only, still only recently become a state um, and was considered by many to be off the mainland, right? And, mm -hmm. and since it was off the mainland, wasn't really part of the United States. He had to remind them um, that it was you know, not an exotic island paradise, but something closer to home. Right. Does your work ever touch modern day like evangelism? And, and is there any kind of, you know, Billy Graham really seemed to lead the way uh, in what we think of, you know, modern day evangelist is, but, or televangelist. Do you see any relations to televangelists today? I think Billy Graham is a complicated figure in U.S. religious history because he's been put in um, a kind of tradition or line of revivalists have included Billy Sunday, Dwight Moody, people from earlier in the 20th century. And there's this tendency to maybe connect him to more contemporary evangelists like uh, T.D. Jakes or Joel Osteen. And uh, right after Billy Graham died earlier this year, I had a call from a news outlet in Las Vegas, and they wanted me to explain you know, the big connection between Billy Graham and the rise of the megachurch and um, pastors who make lots of money, right, and the prosperity gospel. And it's really not quite that simple. It's not that simple at all. Billy Graham was a transmedial preacher from 1950s on. He had a fully formed team by 1950 um, and had a revival in Portland, Oregon, um, where he raised money to, to start a long-term radio show called The D Decision Hour, where he filmed the revival in color so that it could be broadcast elsewhere, right? Where he performed to a live audience, obviously performed is, is not <laughs> the exact word, right? Where he preached to a, a, mm -hmm. a live audience and uh, had you know musicians and enormous crowds attend over a number of days. Um, so television, radio, uh, public appearances, constant uh, appearances in the news media and mm -hmm. magazines and in newspapers, that was all happening from the 1950s on. And a lot of people try to kind of think about televangelism as something that came to its height in the late 70s, early 80s, and mid-80s especially. And that's true. But Billy Graham is, is a, a really interesting phenomenon that, that can be studied separately as well. Sure, sure. We ask typically all the guests on the podcast, um, what is a book that changed their life? I, can, I think I can point to two things. I don't know if they're really favorites. One of them is more like a favorite. The other is one of the most important things I've read, I think, that, that has impacted the, the way that I do scholarship and I read documents and archival materials. And that is the last chapter of W.E.B. Du Bois's Black Reconstruction, and it's called The Propaganda of History. Mm -hmm. And it's an essay about uh, looking at textbooks from the 19th 30s and the way they wrote about the Civil War and the meaning of the Civil War 
and their white supremacist take on uh, slavery and the capacities of African Americans to be citizens, to have civic life in the U.S. And he takes stock of how incredibly racist these histories are. Um, and he looks very closely at the data and the research that historians did to come to the quote-unquote conclusions mm. about blacks in America that they did. And so it's, it's a highly critical essay, but there's also this incredible way that Du Bois describes the humanity of the people who did that white supremacist work and what they thought they were doing hmm. and the way that he's sympathetic to the challenges that historians face living in a white supremacist world and being kind of constrained by the fact that they don't see blacks as human and how that shapes what they did hmm. and how for someone like Du Bois, Understanding African-Americans' humanity puts him in a completely different realm as a historian. Um, and it's incredibly, it's short, and it's just an amazing work that helps us kind of look back and see historical perspectives, but also the problems with the histories that we take for granted. So that, I think, is one of the most important things that I've read, especially because it helps me do research with a very careful eye to my own anger and dismissal of individuals in the past with whom I strongly disagree and could easily dismiss. I'd say for a favorite book, this is completely... <laughs> uh, switching gears? Yeah, completely <laughs> switching gears. I really love a poet named William Bronk, okay. who is not terribly well known, but his poems, I think, are just amazing because they're so simply written and they talk about the everyday world, but mostly they speak about human relations and re relationships and what our, what our lives are like. Um, I, I almost can't describe his poetry because it's just, it's so plain spoken, but at the same time, it's, I find it incredibly profound. Check back at ih.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website, as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IAH underscore UNC.